This is Troy and Joel, and you're listening to Revive Thoughts. Today we have another revived conversation. Revived conversations are where uh, Troy and I take something that is fun to talk about regarding observations we've made about church history. Uh, No sermon in today's episode, but instead we're talking about formal education, a conversation that I'm sure many many of our listeners have had with uh, other people, family members, acquaintances. I feel like it's a common uh, talking point in today's culture, especially with seminaries getting so expensive, but also there's a pastor shortage. And so where, where do people draw the line? Is experience just as good as formal education? Do we still need to maintain that formal education? A lot uh, to discuss, a lot to talk about, a lot to theorize about. But Troy, I thought it would be fun to start off uh, with the quiz here because we often talk about when we do these episodes yeah. that a lot of these people aren't formally educated. A lot of them are. A lot of them do have uh, some incredible seminary degrees, some incredible mentors that are are formally trained in that way. But also, a lot of them aren't. Yeah, almost. If you could, if you could split each episode, it, uh, I won't say this is true of all of them. Certainly not. But a lot of our episodes start off. He was a child prodigy that aced his Latin yeah. exams at the age of five, and by seven was teaching Greek with the handbook he wrote. Or the opposite, where this guy had flunked and failed in every direction in life and was thought to be a nobody. But then, at the age of you know thirty-two, right. he suddenly picked up the Bible and. You know, off he went. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they fall. They usually fall into one of the two categories. If you Google uh, theologians in church history, Google's going to spit out a big list here. And Troy, I'm just going to rattle some off. We'll just do like ten here. You tell me what. You tell me formally educated or not formally educated, because you have uh, the memory of an elephant and you remember everything perfectly. Uh, Martin Luther, <laughs> top of the list. It's a compliment, but normally you don't want to be compared to an elephant in anything, really. Well, in, unless it's memory, they have. Unless it's memory, yeah. Memories. It's the only area where you can be like, that guy looks like an elephant. I mean, his memory does. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's a compliment. Martin Luther was he formally trained? Yeah, Martin Luther yeah. was formally trained. He, had, he was excellently educated and was a professor himself. Spurgeon. He was not formally trained. He hopped into the pulpit. I believe his first sermon was tricked. He was tricked into it at 17. Uh, so not formally educated. Bon Bon, our, our friend the Bonhoeffer. I call him <laughs> Bon Bon in my own time. Let's call him, for the audience, especially for newer people, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is who we mean when he says Bon Bon. Um, uh, yes, he was a professor, and he he went to um, many. He was he was highly educated. D.L. Moody, not formally educated, basically rolled in there one day. Now it was funny too, is both Spurgeon and Moody would go on to found Bible colleges, and they you know they took higher education very seriously, uh, which of course is interesting because they weren't. Yeah, that is really fascinating, actually. Ambrose. Ambrose was not form- not formally educated. If you haven't heard the recent story episode we did on Ambrose, he basically was just dragged into it w- completely unwittingly. Now, he was mentored, and back then they didn't have like a Cambridge or, you know, a Princeton that you sent your people to. Uh, so y- you could maybe make the case that he was educated as he went through the mentorship thing, and, you know, but he certainly wasn't in the way that we would think of seminary educated when he started the job. Uh, Jay Gretchen Machen. Yes, he was highly educated, taking, you know, he went, he went down that road for sure. Wesley. John Wesley was. That's where he met uh, George Whitfield. Him and his brother met each, met, met each other in a college, and they, they started the old Holy Club. Holy Club. I was just about to ask, what was the name of their club, the Holy Club? Yeah. I, I mean, I would love to make fun of them, but Joel, if you recall, in Bible college, I was a part of a goofy club, so I can't really go too far. It wasn't called the Holy Club, though. No, we had a much cooler name. <laughs> 
Martin Lloyd-Jones. As we covered on a recent episode of uh, with G. Campbell Morgan, he was not formally similar, seminary educated, and neither was his mentor, G. Campbell Morgan. Wycliffe. He was educated, yes, sir. He had a master's from a college. I mean, back then, all the colleges were kind of half, were Christianish. you know, sure. it, it was in the 1300s, so. Okay, yeah, all right. So, you know, quick summary of the math, uh, calculating beep, boop, bop, uh, the yays, five, five to four, so 40%. Seminary educate. Fi- All right. Well, we, f- we finished it then. You guys heard it there? <laughs> but so, yeah, just kind of a quick overview. A lot of these people, and of course, you know, you could you could make a list to skew of one direction or the other, but I would say that's pretty representative of, yeah, it's like a 30 to 40% non-formal educated yeah. rate is pretty accurate. And I, I would certainly like. say that the non-educated, the non-formally, you know, got all scholar honors, awards people, the ones that are are sometimes the more famous ones, you know, Charles Spurgeon, D.L. Moody, John Bunyan, Martin Lloyd-Jones, G. Campbell Morgan, like, those are some big, big names. And they're not any less big than your formerly educated guys, ex- per se, but they weren't small. Like, it wasn't like, oh, you can skip seminary, but... You know, that means you're going down a career of probably no one hearing of you. That's that's not the case. Mm-hmm. It's not a career ender, at least as far as I can tell in church history, uh, to be non-seminary trained. I feel like our modern viewpoint of this also is in a unique spot as well because there is such a personnel shortage in the American church right now. Churches can be picky and demand seminary degrees, uh, you know, compared to other pockets of history, I feel like where there was, I don't know. Does that make sense, Troy? Would you say that's accurate? No, I, from my, so this, this will be a little bit less church history and this, this part about to speak right here. This is a little more of my own personal experience. I have applied for pastorships. I was a children's pastor at one point. I have gone through different education paths, you know, in both involved in the church and in parachurch and different things. And it is becoming increasingly a thing where if you don't, <clears throat> have a seminary background or you don't have a master's mm-hmm. is going to be very difficult for you to land um, positions that I would argue from what my experience, from what I've looked at uh, 40 years ago would not have been expected for you to have a seminary's master. You know, mm-hmm. a, a good example would be a pretty normal sized, what your typical uh, church back in the day, a youth pastor may have expected to have maybe some Bible college, maybe not, to be honest, uh, probably wouldn't have been expected to have a seminary. But a lot of times now, that's that's actually pretty common. Where, oh, you, you, know, you don't have a master's, how are you going to handle that? And that's really different uh, than the way it certainly was 100 years ago. And so we're, we're, we're definitely, I would argue, living in a time period where we are leaning much more heavily as a church on the idea that we want these guys to have gone through seminary not so much in the time period where you would see, you know, your Charles Spurgeons and your these different people kind of sprouting up everywhere who uh, weren't seminary educated, and it wasn't mm-hmm. that uncommon, right? And I think I think it's almost a result of there's so much in in our information age and our population age. Like we're way more populated than we were even a hundred years ago. Like there is literally billions of people more on this planet than there were a hundred years ago. Uh, and there's a lot of noise. There's a lot of traffic on the internet. I feel like a seminary degree or, you know, just something you can put on an application is an easy, quick way for a church to get just a baseline idea of, okay, you're responsible enough to go through school, to learn this stuff. We have a good idea of what you've learned. It's kind of like a, a lazy 
I don't want to say lazy, but it's an easy way for them to quickly assess lots of people. And that might, I think that's, mm-hmm. that's a side effect of uh, what society has grown into over the past, you know, 50, 100 years. Yeah. Well, and, and I, that's actually, I think, excellent. A, a lot of times I think the seminary, A, just tells you, is this guy higher qualifications? You know, does he have that, uh, that certain credential that can be good for your church? Because look, like, I don't know, credentialism, the idea that you want people who are highly regarded is the thing that certainly affects churches as much as it affects businesses and other institutions. So that certainly happens as well. And seeing somebody's seminary or, or Bible college, wherever they come from, can tell you a lot about them, too. You know, there's a very big difference between uh, a candidate who says, yeah, I come from, uh, you know, South ba- Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and uh, someone who comes over and says, yeah, I come from the, you know, I think there's a Pacific Theological Seminary. It's uh, Pacific Northwest. Oh, I'm totally blanking on the name of it. Uh, that's over in Seattle and totally different than like, I think it's Golden Gate Baptist Theological Seminary over in California. Uh, some of these, just just by knowing where they come from, it doesn't mean they believe everything that their seminary taught them, uh, but you can learn a lot about a person if they're putting that forward and they're saying like, yeah, I'm a proud graduate of, you know, Dallas Theological Seminary. You're going to learn, okay, this person's probably, you know, dispensationalist while some of these other people are probably Mm -hmm. uh, reformed or they're probably Arminian or they're probably progressive or they're charismatic or these things can be learned quickly from that that it may take longer to flesh out and if you're working through a stack of 10 candidates that can be a big deal help you move through it quickly right right whereas back in the day I feel like they had the luxury of being more relational with how they came across uh, potential leaders in churches and things like that because yeah it was that's how most society worked was relationships and conversations. Yeah. And today we don't have, we don't have as much of that. Well, that's actually a good point. And it, it, there's actually a really good point in that because a lot of times these people who we look at, who are pastors who become uh, well, I, a very large number of them aren't sending applications in online through like an online church board yet. That's probably where a lot of your churches today are. Uh, certainly when I worked at a church and we were looking through applicants, we were just taking applicants in from indeed and church board and whatever. <laughs> a lot of these guys would have been getting recommendations like a bit of friend and a friend, you know, he knew Mm -hmm. this guy is pretty legit. Let's give him a chance kind of a thing. I, I don't know. Right. in. maybe you, maybe you definitely like that's still how it works in most churches. I I don't think that is, I think we're seeing a much more of a kind of corporate, you know, let's send it, let's get a bunch of applications in and see who looks as like, it's going to be a good fit. Now there are positives to that. Certainly I have gotten hired because of some of that, because, I didn't have a lot of connections, but somebody took a risk on my application. I, I think I did a good job. Yet at the same time, that certainly comes with the drawback of you don't have that kind of personal touch as much anymore, mm-hmm. and it's more of a more of more of a kind of corporate thing where you're not sure until you're in the interviews. And so these seminary things can be a big deal. Now, Joel, I posed this question on our Twitter. If you're not following us, it's at Revive Thoughts, but the name will be Troy Frazier, aka Revive Studios, because when we made this Twitter. Uh, three and a half years ago, we never really planned to use it, and we called it Revive Thoughts. And you guys, actually, those of you who are on Twitter, had a really good conversation with it. I've seen Twitter conversations go south. I've uh, posted things that have gone south before. Uh, this was not one of them. This was a very, for the most part, nice conversation. I just read, as I said that, I scrolled down and saw a comment by uh, one person who said, "Seminary, the most seminaries are pits of heresy." Okay, so like not all of these were well informed, you know, were were well thought out per se statements, but there were some really, uh, really, really good points people were making back and forth. So it's really interesting too. So what I found was probably most interesting about this discussion was that you would see people make really good 
points kind of back and forth on this. Like if you go and read this thread, if you were to go back a week or two on my on the page, you can see, for example, this gentleman, Rob Brewer, uh, says here, I think seminary has historically taught dogma rather than critical thinking. And he put in parentheses, I work at a seminary. Churches need pastors who are grounded in sound theology, able to critically apply that theology into the 21st century and can do it in a tweet, 20 minutes or in 20 weeks. So, you know, they just need multiple skills and that the seminaries today have kind of historically failed that. Now, that's a pretty good point, right? It's, it's true. This is something like sometimes I think that there is a case to be made that the seminary can be so intent on putting their theology imprint on you that they don't make you adept at handling different viewpoints and people who come from other groups. And then the reverse was I saw another person who said something like, oh, we live in such a distracted social media like world full of so many different views of the world coming at you at one, all at once. That seminary is really helpful because otherwise it would be overwhelming to expect somebody to be able to handle that untrained. And I was like, oh, that's a pretty good point. It's kind of a good counterpoint why we do need the seminary to keep happening. <laughs> and then we have another person who was like, well, look, all, the seminary people can be just as bad. And pr- seminaries have produced just as many prosperity teachers as, you know, non-seminary people. And, I, you know, that's a good point, too. Just because they have a seminary education certainly doesn't mean uh, that they are going to be great guys either. That does not indicate that they were actually better. In fact, one gentleman kind of laid it out in like a one, two, three tweet, which I really liked. Uh, where he said, here, I found him, Will. Will says, seminary and Bible college should be and usually is massively helpful in equipping a minister with knowledge. But the dangers are, one, a spirit of intellectualism, where knowledge is not the end goal. Two, taking everything not captive, because humanism is everywhere. And three, God's call alone qualifies us. And kind of making the case that there can be problems with going to seminary, that they can become these kind of people who want to be the intellectual academic elites or they refu- they kind of fall into progressive, sem- secular, humanistic ways of thinking. Or they think that seminaries are a replacement for a, ca- a call by God, and that's not the case either. And I was like, that's really good. Yeah. I do wonder how often when we send people off to seminary, do we, re- do we kind of warn them like, hey, you know there's a bunch of problems that can come with going to seminary as well. And I- I'm not sure we've done a good job doing that. Yeah, that is fascinating. And I, I also do think, because this is just fresh in my memory, because we did recently, within the last month or two, do that episode uh, where we talked about the Wesley brothers, and they had a similar debate between, between each other. John Wesley was for formally educated people, and his brother was wanting to encourage laymen to rise up in the church and and have some roles and positions in the church as well. And that was a, a point of contention for them. They, they fought over it quite a bit. But it's interesting to note that this conversation has been going on long before this century as well. Well, and it's kind of interesting, too, because like it, these people both had really firm opinions. And if I recall in that episode, Charles Wesley was kind of reviewing people who would be going up for preaching and he was kind of kind of trying to fail people, which reminds me of another thing, too. How many people who would have gone before a preaching board or a group of people on their first sermon or or their first couple outings failed and they were basically told you'll amount to nothing and then they go on to be some of the most famous preachers and people in history and that can be the other side of seminary too these people go off to seminary maybe they don't do as good as their peers maybe they're kind of told you don't have what it takes and then they might be wrong some of those people might not have had what it took but we see on oftentimes that the people who were told they didn't have what it took actually did. And so it's another kind of element where it's like, okay, just because they got that seminary education or just because they dropped out, that doesn't mean they actually won't turn in. They, you know, they won't turn out the way they're supposed to at the end of this. It doesn't mean that God's calling on them wasn't real. 
So we've seen that, you know, obviously there's these incredible great men of God in church history that had did not have that formal seminary education and did incredible things for the kingdom. What would be, I'm curious, what's your advice? So, so if you have someone that's, you know, a young up and comer, I feel called to ministry. Mm. Should I dedicate this time and money into pursuing this degree or should I uh, go a different direction, maybe get some more experience in a church? What would be your advice? What, what are your thoughts? Wow, that's a, you know what? You'd think I would have prepared for that question a little bit better. I spent <laughs> you know, all this time thinking about, yeah, you did. That was a, that was one I wasn't, I didn't see coming because that is such, that's a really tough question. So, you know, just to kind of inform the audience where Joel and I are coming from a little bit, I, we started Revive Thoughts before I'd gone to seminary, but Joel and I met in Bible college. So we had a little bit of training that happened, you know, earlier in our life. I, again, the show was started before I went to seminary, but while we were running the show, I did go to seminary, did get a master's. Was, it was helpful. Uh, mm, do I, do I, so where I land in that is, man, I don't know. <laughs> I, uh, I, I really saw benefits to working in a church environment and to getting out and just doing things. There are things you learn by doing that you can't learn in a classroom. And yet, I do think that especially your and my Bible college experience, Joel, for me, mm -hmm. I know that it was a very helpful kind of, I don't want to say safety net, but I feel like it put good bumpers on my life that when I would kind of go through life and see people, you know, talking about certain ideas or things, I'd kind of hear that and I'd go, I, you know, doesn't, something about that just doesn't quite land right. And even though I didn't, wasn't very, you know, always theologically astute, I was, something just felt fishy. And then later on, those things were turned out bad. I was like, yeah, it just seemed like it didn't really stick with what I was supposed, you know, what I had learned mm -hmm. younger and earlier. And I feel like Bible college had a huge impact on keeping uh, both myself and my wife on the straight and narrow. And so that was really helpful training that we really needed. And I have a hard time imagining that we would be doing church history podcasts mm. and all these things had we not gotten that earlier training. But again, it was hard. It also, the experiences we had of my family have had of going to China and going, you know, to be at behavior risk place, all these different things. Man, that's so tough. I would say that if you have had zero training, if you are like a congregant at a church and you are starting from zero, you could be very tempted to think, I know a whole lot about the Bible. I've learned it as a growing up. I think I'm fine. Because when I went to Bible college, that was kind of my attitude. I was like, I'm fine. I know a lot. I'm pretty smart. And I was super wrong. And I got kind of like, not flattened. I, did, I made good grades. But I but I learned, realized I have so much more studying to do to understand the Bible. And I got kind of, okay, I feel like I know it. And then I read a bunch of books throughout history. And I think book reading is super undervalued. Because uh, we mentioned people like Spurgeon, Moody, all these guys. They may not have gone to formal education, but they read insane amounts mm -hmm. of books. I've been to Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary Spurgeon Library where they have like all his books. It's huge. So the guy was not exactly, um, you know, turning the TV on and turn on Netflix at night and chilling. Like he, he, had, he had a very large collection of books that he was reading through. So to call him uneducated would be a little bit of a misnomer. And so it, it's tricky. You should be, I, you need to be learning. As a pastor, you need to be thinking and you need to be growing in that. And you need to be getting these fundamentals. And then I would also say, if you're a congregant, you, you're, you need to go to a Bible college or something. I think that's really encouraged that. If you don't have a, if you can find a mentor or someone who will walk with you in life, that's also really good. But be careful because there were a lot of people in the Twitter who are making the case like, I know a lot of people who are seminary educated who are not good, who have been harmful to churches or harmful to people. And I think that can be, we underestimate the threat that bad education can have on people as well. 
yes, seminary education, I, I think, can be overall helpful. And I think it's overall, it is a good thing for most people who probably do need it. At the same time, though, I would warn you that if you get that education poorly, if you kind of go down that academia, intellectual, I'm smarter than everyone else route, uh, that is going to be so much more of a danger to you than if you had never gone down it at all. Because the guy who doesn't go to seminary, every time he probably gets up and preaches, more than likely he's praying, God help me, I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> uh, but the guy who goes to seminary thinks he's learned among the best, is you know, knocking back with these really genius people. He can, he can be tempted to think, I'm so smart. I'm so good. I'm so intelligent. I've got this. I know that I saw that happening around me at seminary where some of the people there were, were a little bit thought, thought very highly of their time there. And I thought to myself, that can be a real danger as well. And then you get out of seminary and maybe your first couple of churches aren't interested in that. And you end up at a rural church and you're disconnecting with your people because you're wanting to hobnob with the elites, but you're still out there in rural who knows where. And that can be a real problem. There are so many things about this that can be uh, a real it uh, can be hard to decipher and certainly I don't think that Joel and I uh, have all the answers it's funny too because I this has been going on for a long time Henry Lydon a name you probably haven't heard of but a sermon that we have done uh, he lived at the same time as Charles Spurgeon and uh, he was a little bit older than him and he basically was helping get the uh, Baptists of London going kind of getting that denomination off the ground it was already off the ground but he's helping kind of organize it in London he became friends with Spurgeon a bunch of other guys there and he was like, we need to get a Baptist Bible college going. We need to get like a seminary going. We need all these credentialing things. We shouldn't be hiring uncredentialed people kind of thing. He's making cases for that. And, uh, and well, the thing was, he also didn't have a Bible college or a seminary behind him. He also was untrained and Spurgeon was untrained. And somebody basically wrote into like a newspaper and was like, Henry Lydon's making a lot of arguments, but I happen to know a person from a certain town and mentioned Lydon's town uh, who runs a big church in London and he's uncredentialed, should we be concerned? And he wrote back something like, why, who is this brilliant man? We should certainly get to know somebody who snuck through our ranks like that. It was a jokey response, goofing around, basically. But the point the person was making is like, you're putting a bar out there, Henry, that you couldn't pass, that Spurgeon doesn't pass, that D.L. Moody doesn't pass, and that is not in Scripture. And so as I was kind of looking through this debate and looking through the Twitter and, you know, because Twitter is where you go for the best of academic thoughts, but it was, it was actually a good discussion. I mean, gave me lots of back and forth to think about. I do think that there is a lot of positive net growth that can happen at seminary. Certainly, I am very appreciative of my Bible college experience. I've also seen people who went off to not so good schools that really harmed their faith. But I think that as where if I were looking at the Church of America today and going, okay, if I could help her out right now at least from my experience in the circles I've been in, I would say that I think we need to make sure we're leaving room for Charles Spurgeon's and Martin Lloyd-Jones and D.L. Moody's and G. Campbell Morgan's and John Bunyan's, who also was not educated, uh, and these other really brilliant people who I don't think right now with the current system of churches that most churches have in place, they would shine. And a couple of people in the tweets were like, yeah, Charles Spurgeon and Martin Lloyd-Jones did it, but you're not Charles Spurgeon and you're not Martin Lloyd-Jones. And I'm like, you know what, though? I have a sermon where Charles Spurgeon was at Whitfield's church and he goes, where's the Whitfield of today? We've lost men like that. And of course, the irony is, Charles Spurgeon, you're one of the Whitfields of your day. You are the replacement. But he didn't know it. We don't know who's going to be the great names of history that we remember we don't know who's going to fall off at the end and sadly get forgotten. We don't know who the greats of today are. Is there even room for them to come in, out and 
make a name for themselves and change the course because some of the most powerful names in church history did not have seminary education. Some of the most powerful names in church history didn't have that background of teaching. They weren't those things. They loved books. They were intelligent, but they didn't have that background. And I do think it would be good that we leave room for them to still make their way to the table. That doesn't mean that unseminary educated people are better than the seminary educated people, but also likewise, the seminary educated people are not naturally and inherently better than the others. I think God actually, I think I think the system works really well when you have a combination of both. They're kind of rising up, rubbing shoulders, and maybe challenging each other. You know, when we did our, uh, when we did, I did a recent little research on John Bunyan, and there's an amazing moment where this, uh, where John Owen, you know, great preacher, very famous theologian, was going off and visiting John Bunyan's church. And he loved hearing John Bunyan preach. And the king at the time, it was kind of knew, knew the, knew John Owen. He's like, why are you such a highly intelligent, educated man wasting your time listening to sermons by this tinkerer out in the middle of nowhere? Like, what do you care about John Bunyan? That guy has not been trained by anybody. And John Bunyan said, or John Owen said, I would train, I would trade all my training. I would trade all my knowledge to have his ability to grip souls. And which is to say, we have one of the most educated people of all time saying, if I could trade all my knowledge to be able to speak as John Bunyan does to the average man, I would do it. We need John Owens. We need the highly educated. We need those great thinkers who can challenge the academic institutions. We need them. But I think we also need to remember that we also need these other people who just are have that natural touch, who are being moved by God, and who need that ability to get into the churches as well, and need to be able to do that without feeling like, oh, if I don't get a seminary degree, no one will look at me because that's the only way to do it. That's how that's my credentialing way in. We need, I think, maybe to a little a little bit more room for those other people to come in because I think God uses both of those people to work on each other and create a, I think, a better church for everyone when we have both of those groups at the table. You said something that I thought was interesting. You were talking about, you know, Spurgeon's library. And I think that's an important distinction to make. You know, these people, and you said as much, it's not that they were uneducated. In fact, most of them were farly, probably far more educated than the others with seminary degrees. And that, you know, there is a personality thing to that. Like there are, there are people, Troy, you're one of them, for example, that like will seek out material and read it out and, feel a calling to better educate themselves and to learn about this type of stuff. And there's people that aren't going to do that. You know, <laughs> I feel I feel like there's a, a kind of a personality aspect to whether or not you have that self-drive to educate themselves. I bet you Spurgeon and Moody thought, hey, you know, I th- it is a better use of my time for me to self-educate through reading all these books than it is to take time to go to a seminary and learn from other people. And they're probably, you know, in their specific instance, they probably were right in that instance. I, you know, again, that's not going to apply to every single person. I feel that's a bit unique, but I do think there's a personality factor in in that as well. And I think also, like, there, we kind of had this default setting of, you know, if they they if they went to seminary, that's good. I, I think right now we're living in an age where that's kind of the default, and there there are probably going to be some some Baptists that write in and say absolutely not. Um, but there's going to be it's a little default setting in a lot of groups right now that the seminary is necessary. And I go, I don't know. I mean, it really kind of depends on some of your life experience. You know, some people who uh, grow up on the mission field who have been around that for 25 years, their entire life, for example, they might in many ways have experiences, knowledge, know-how, speaking ability 
that's that is actually far out superior of what you would learn in seminary from somebody who really didn't take it seriously until they were 20. It is, obviously, that's a weird example, an apple and orange maybe. But I think the point I'm trying to make is like the, I, leaving that room for both sides. And that doesn't, we haven't even touched on one of the big issues of seminary today that is, I think, very different from back then, uh, which is that education cost is very, very uh, high. And one of the interesting things that I noticed was, you know, it, seminary was, ex, was an expectation on so many of the applications and things that we filled out, uh, that my family and I filled out. And yet on the other side of it, the other expectation was that you had no debt. And it's like, wow, that's kind of a kind of an interesting uh, quandary you have here because to apply for this job, I need to have a degree. But to get that job, I I need to also have no debt. But to get the degree, I'm going to have a hard time doing that, going to the institutions, a lot of the institutions we have today with no debt. And, and that doesn't mean every seminary or every person who does graduates with debt. I know there are lots of people who do. But there's also no denying that there are lots of people who are currently graduating with debt because they're trying to get seminary degrees to work jobs that maybe necessarily they, they wouldn't be the best for them to have. And so it's obviously it's a very complicated question. And, and to say that every person's situation is different is something I don't normally like to do because I feel like that's kind of a cop out of an answer. But when it comes to this one, I definitely think that it's really going to be different for the person who's headed to oversee missions versus the person who's going to be a pastor of a big church in a downtown area versus the person who's heading to a rural part of the country to the person who wants to work in parachurch or the person who wants to be a sound tech guy, a worship pastor. All these people are dealing with this in different ways. And then there's also congregants who are saying, look, I don't want to be directly in ministry, but I do want to be educated. I'm going to go to seminary too. All of these people have reasons to or to not do these things. It's very difficult. And I almost ended on that note. Should you go to seminary? The church history would say, maybe. Yeah, yeah maybe. <laughs> um it's been helpful to some people. It's been harmful to some people. I can think of an example, Alexander White. I would argue that if from reading him, I think education in some ways hurt him. Although it was like he was a young guy, impoverished. He got a kind of a scholarship to go to the thing and education opened the door to him. Without that, without that scholarship, he would have never been the pastor he was. And yet I think he idolized education a little too much and became more progressive as time came on and got weaker and weaker in his issues and, and buddy-buddied with other elite academic people who were veering from the faith. And I think it really cost him. I think one of the reasons Alexander White isn't a household name is not because he wasn't a wonderful preacher, but because he kind of sullied his reputation by spending too much time with these academics because he so loved academia. And so it can really, it can really go and either or direction because yeah the other side of it jonathan edwards that dude was highly educated and then after he got that he got a job with his grandpa's church and his grandpa was like before you get started 10 hours a day you're going to read books for like a year or two because you're just now ready to get ready to get educated so i mean was that too much education i don't know jonathan edwards did change the world so it's it's tough <laughs> it's fascinating to think about though i yeah. have a feeling we might, uh, you know, set a new record for most feedback received for an episode. <laughs> we're gonna see. We're gonna see what the response. I, I will this say is. this. Uh, this seemed like such a good idea at the time when we were talking about it, and on the Twitter, it was really enjoyable. And I know that we're gonna get. Uh, there's a very high chance we're gonna get uh, cemeteries or seminaries or cemeteries. How could you encourage people to go and kill their faith? And we're also going to get uh, seminaries are the best things in the world. How could you encourage people not to get mm -hmm. educated at the same time? Because to a degree, I guess we did land on both of those spectrums.
I hope you know that Joel and I are trying to do our best here with with our tool of church history. We we are there are lots of wonderful, great, and amazing theology podcasts and Bible podcasts, and I you you certainly should go to the Bible for all of your answers way before. But from our attempt to try to look at church history and see, well, what did the great people of church history do? What has been successful in the past? Seminary has had, you know, seminary higher education training has had great results in the past. It's also had bad ones and you don't need it, but also it's not a bad thing. Um, and whatever you should be. And this is the one thing, if I can put one button on this where I'm like, I can tell you from a fact, this is true. You should be reading. Even if you're seminary educated, you should be reading, not just buying books, but actually reading them. And if you're not seminary educated, you should be reading. If you want to be in ministry, you should be reading. If you're not wanting to be in ministry, you should also be reading. The one thing I can encourage you to do that every person in church history has done is they read good books, not just reading garbage, but you, they read good books that encouraged them in their walk with God. And almost every single episode, we say, this is a great guy who read, who wrote such and such a book. You should check it out. And so if you're not sure where to go, go grab a random episode and listen to what books they wrote. Um, there are lots of wonderful books that you should be reading. And regardless of where you end up in your walk, that is something I can encourage you to do. Revivedthoughts at gmail.com. Uh, shoot us an email. Let us know your thoughts. Maybe uh, maybe it'll get a shout out. You can also message us on your social media platform of choice by finding Revive Studios or Revive Thoughts. Uh, this was fun, Troy. Thank you, Joel. I appreciated it. And I, and I am more nervous for this episode's response than maybe normal, but I, I hopefully everyone enjoys it. And when Joel says your social media of choice, we don't recommend trying to reach out to us on MySpace because we're not there. So maybe keep it to the, keep it to the, we, we, is MySpace still around? I think it's like a music platform or something. We should, now, we should make a not, page. <laughs> reach to us your favorite social media, MySpace. MySpace, yeah. We'll bring it back. There you go. All right, that's going to do it for this episode of Revive Conversations. And until next time, uh, we'll uh, we'll chat with you later. This is Troy and Joel. You are listening to Revive Thoughts.